0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. On an August night, 1933, Harbin, in then Japanese controlled Manchuria, Semyon Kaspe, French citizen, famed concert musician, and Russian Jew, is abducted after a night out. Suspicion falls on the city's fervently anti-Semitic Russian fascists. Yet despite pressure from the French consulate, the Japanese police slow walk the investigation. And three months later, Semyon is found dead. The abduction, murder, and trial catch the world's attention right as Japan is trying to win international support for the puppet state of Manchukuo. And it's the subject of Scott Seligman's latest book, Murder in Manchuria, The True Story of a Jewish Virtuoso, Russian Fascist, a French Diplomat, and a Japanese Spy in Occupied China. Scott Seligman is a writer and historian. He is the national award-winning author of numerous books, including The Great Kosher Meat War of 1902, Immigrant Housewives and the Riot That Shook New York City, The Third Degree, The Triple Murder That Shook Washington and Changed American Criminal Justice, and The First Chinese American, The Remarkable Life of Wang Chin-Fu. Today, Scott and I talk about Harbin, the major players in Semyon's abduction and murder, and how the investigation and trial became an international sensation. So, Scott, thank you for coming on the show. You know, maybe it's first to, to talk about, I guess, the setting. You know, what sure. was Harbin like during this interwar period? And why was there such a huge Jewish, I guess, a relatively large Jewish population in this city
0: you really need to start talk by talking about manchuria as a region
1: it had the misfortune
0: of being coveted by three different countries at the turn of the 20th century china had the arguably the strongest claim to it it had been part of china under the Qing dynasty but russia was interested in it and japan was also interested in it and for different reasons the japanese were looking for the natural resources because it was a um it was a, it was abundant with um Uh, with agricultural and also mineral resources. They also uh, were overpopulated. They were looking for a place to um, uh, expand some of their population to to settle people there. The Russians were interested, first of all, in continuing their Trans-Siberian Railway all the way to Vladivostok. And that actually, the only sensible way to do that was to go right through Manchuria rather than through Russia, which would have added about 500 miles to it. Uh, And of course the Chinese wanted to keep it because it was part of China. So there was a struggle for Manchuria um, and it involved uh, at various times the, what they called the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. Um, Russia, after the, um, after the Sino-Japanese War, uh, the Japanese got control of uh, Manchuria. Uh, that's also the time that they got the Taiwan and they got the Pescadores. Um, but they were forced to to, uh, to retreat and eventually Russia came in. Russia, Russia uh, created a deal with the Chinese. They would help them if the Japanese invaded again. But in exchange, they wanted a right of way through Manchuria to, um, to connect uh, their, their railroad to Vladivostok. And they were also interested in Dalian, uh, which was called Port Arthur at the time, um, because it was a warm water port. Vladivostok was a cold water port. which With a warm water port, they had access to the Pacific 365 days a year. So um, the, um, as they built the railroad, where the railroad crossed the Sungari River, which is the the jiang in, in Chinese? That's where the city of Harbin was established. It had been a small collection of fishing villages before that. Unlike almost all other Chinese cities, um, Harbin has no history before the very very end of the nineteenth century. It doesn't and it doesn't look like Hangzhou or Suzhou. It looks like St. Petersburg because it was built by the Russians, and it was built to be the headquarters of the railroad and also the headquarters of the Russian presence in Manchuria. Now, how did the Jews get there? Well, uh, in order to cement their hold on Manchuria, uh, what the Russians wanted to do was create an industrial and a commercial infrastructure there, in addition to just running the railroad. And their initial efforts to um, cause Russian citizens to move into the area and settle it and, and begin to do business were kind of anemic. So they got the idea that they would offer an opportunity to Russian Jews. Now, Russian Jews in this stage were, um, uh, there was a lot of prejudice against Russian Jews and a lot of restrictions on their lives. There were professions they couldn't enter, there were schools they couldn't enter. uh, There were also um, violent um, uprisings against them called pogroms. And what the Tsar promised the Jews who were willing to go to Harbin and go to Manchuria and settle it was essentially freedom from some of these restrictions. So it was sort of, as they built the place, it was kind of Russia without pogroms. And um, over the course of the next couple of decades, some 20,000 Jews uh, settled in, uh, in the city of Harbin. So that's the, that kind of sets the stage for this. Uh, so by the turn of the century, the, the Jewish community is growing. It grows eventually up to 20,000. And for the first couple of decades of the 20th century, uh, the Jews were fairly comfortable, unmolested, and able to, um, to do business and live comfortably in, uh, in Harbin. It was only after the um the Russian revolution that things really began to change for it.
1: Um so I know there there's a lot of backstory and a lot of major players we have to get through before we start talking about um what happens uh, during during the abduction and, and eventual murder. But before I get into that, I mean what what started um what started you kind of on this path to researching and and writing about this murder? What what kind of inspired you to to do more research into this event?
0: Well, I'm one of the earlier generation of China hands. I was living in Beijing, um, actually, at first in the early 1980s. And then I lived there again in the mid-1990s. And one of the things that a bunch of us did in the 1990s was we set up a a Jewish community in Beijing. It had never really had one in the modern era. And this was a liberal Jewish community. We called it Kehilat Beijing. And... um, among the things that we occasionally did was planned trips, and it was somewhere in the late '90s—I don't remember which year it was—that a bunch of us decided we were going to go up to Harbin and take a look. We, we were very aware of the fact that Jews had preceded us in China, going back actually as far as the eighth century. If you want to look at the uh, the Jews who came west by the Silk Road, uh, sorry, came east by the Silk Road, um, and those communities no longer really exist. Most people have heard about the Shanghai Jews, the Jews who had refuge in Shanghai during World War II. Um, but uh, the Manchurian Jews don't get quite as much press. A lot of people don't sort of know very much about them. So we wanted to see what was left of Jewish Arbin. And we took a, a weekend trip there. And it turns out that in the built environment, there's a lot still there. There are two former synagogues. Um, one of them now, one of them at the time was a, a hot, used as a hostel. Another one was used as a social club. I'm told now that, one of the, that the second one has actually become a museum of the Jewish presence in Harbin, but it wasn't that way in, in the nineties. There were um, the uh, former Jewish businesses. Um, was, um, there was, there's, a former, there's a Jewish cemetery outside of town. And there was a hotel uh, that turns out to have been the very first European standard hotel in China, uh, sorry, in, in, in Harbin. Uh, and it was built in around 1913, 1914 by a man named Joseph Caspe. And that's where we stayed. And um, it turned, I was got, I kind of got interested in the history of Kaspe and, and the history of the Jews of Arbin because I really didn't know very much about why they got there and how they got there. Never really imagined at the time I would do research on it and write a book about it, but it kind of stayed with me. Um, this was a very unusual piece of China. It looked more like Russia than it did like China, and it had a Jewish history. And I guess those are the things that attracted me to the subject.
1: Um, so you mentioned this, this hotel, and you mentioned the man who founded it, um, Joseph Kaspe. Um, who's the father of the victim of this of this whole, I guess, of, of this book, um, Semyon Kaspe. Um, but let's go kind of talk about that family a bit. Who was Joseph and who was Semyon? And, and how, I, I guess, what place did they have in Harbin society?
0: Um, uh, Joseph was um, originally from Belarus, from a town called Chernokov. He was born in 1878. And he was one of some 30,000 or more Russian Jews who actually fought in the Russo-Japanese War. And um, uh, after Russia was defeated, he was, um, he, uh, he was demobilized in uh, 1906, I think it was. Uh, so he's 26 years old. He's in Manchuria. And he can't think of a particularly good reason to go back to the pale of settlement where he came from, where Jews are um, uh, subjects of a lot of discrimination. Yeah. If he stayed yeah. in Manchuria, he was free of all of those rules. And that's what he did. He started out as a... Um, uh, a watchmaker and eventually moved into uh, the jewelry business. And he was able to amass enough capital to buy a lot on what was then and actually what remains today, the main shopping area in Harbin. The Russians called it which means Chinese street. Uh, the Chinese that they call it which is basically central street. But it's still the, 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 the center of the shopping district of Harbin. And on it, he built the Hotel Moderne which was the first European standard hotel in uh, in Harbin. And it's where everybody who was anybody stayed when they were in town. Uh, he also um, invested in some cinemas. And so when the action of the book begins, he is a magnate. He is one of the wealthier uh, and more publicly wealthy um, uh, businessmen in the city of Harbin. He um, marries a woman from his hometown. I've, I've, I've never been able to figure out whether he went back to Russia to marry her or whether she came uh, first to Harbin and they married there. They had two children, Semyon and uh, his brother. Um, uh, Semyon was born, I think, in 1909. Um, and Volodya was born, I think, the year after that. And um, as was the case with a lot of Jewish families in, uh, in this part of, of, of the world, especially after the Soviet Union was born, they became stateless. Uh, they, unless, they, unless they applied for Soviet citizenship, they no longer really had a country. And so a lot of them educated their children in Harbin because there was pretty good uh, elementary and secondary schools there. And then they would send their, their, uh, their children abroad for further education. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Semyon and his brother. Both of them were sent um, to, uh, to Paris. Their mother went with them. And uh, Semyon um, had um, uh, very early on, they realized that he had a musical talent. He studied piano and he was uh, really something of an impresario. I've read lots of the reviews of his, um, how how well he played and what, uh, what composers he enjoyed playing while he was in France. Um, the other thing that he did that became very important while in France was that he took out French citizenship. And uh, it was uh, it, much more advantageous to be a, a foreign national than to be a stateless Jew. So when he went back to Harbin, um, his father, signed over all of his property to Semyon and to his brother, both new French citizens. And this was important because after the Japanese invaded in 1931, uh, they were interested in acquiring property and basically acquiring wealth from from Manchuria. Uh, One of uh, of the um, characters in the book explained that the Japanese wanted Manchuria to pay for its own colonization and they didn't have the money for it. So they were basically going to shake people down um, and uh, it was you were in a much more advantageous position if you had a foreign flag over your establishment than if you were simply stateless. And so that's so when, when the when the narrative begins really in 1933, uh, the Hotel Moderne is in, officially in French hands, uh, owned by Joseph Caspé's sons, but basically managed by Joseph Caspé himself.
1: Um, and of course, the fact that 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 Samuel is French plays i think an important role in how the investigation plays out which we'll get to in a second and you know um but uh to kind of go through some of the other important players in this um harbin is also home to the uh to russian fascists um who become i think pretty close allies with the with with the japanese um i guess who were the like who was this what was this group and why were the Japanese so interested in working with them? Well,
0: after the um, Russian Revolution, uh, there were a lot of um, a lot of white Russians as opposed to wet, red Russians. They, that's how they referred to themselves. uh, were exiled from China from from Russia or felt the need to leave. A lot of them were stripped of their wealth and they came. They were impoverished and they came over the border. I think it was something like 200, 250,000 of them emigrated uh, from Russia to Manchuria just to get out of harm's way. But they were deeply anti-Soviet, and they were, most of them, or many of them deeply anti-Semitic as well. In fact, some of them basically blamed the Jews for the Russian Revolution. And um, so when when they showed up in the the, uh, second decade, the end of the second decade of the 20th century, life for the Jews of Harbin uh, took a turn for the worse. And they did things like they did, I think at one point they burned, uh, they, they set fire to the synagogue and they started kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. Uh, they, uh, they, the Russian fascist party actually was founded in Harbin. It had branches all over the world, but Harbin was always the center of gravity. So when the Japanese came in, the Japanese came in in 1931 in a big way, they essentially um, conquered and took, o- took over this region of China. It's North Chi- northeast China today. It's... Today's, um, let's see if I can do it, Heilongjiang, Liaoning, and Jilin provinces, and also a little bit of what is today um, uh, Inner Mongolia. And that's the region. The Japanese carved it off from the rest of China and declared it the independent country of Manchukuo, or Manchukuo in, 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 in Mandarin. And um, uh, they, they, essentially it was, a, as you referred to it earlier, it's a puppet state. The Japanese ran things, but they didn't want it to look as if they ran things. So they went through an elaborate process of setting up a new government. And of course, it wasn't just the Japanese government. They had to use the local people as well because they wanted the message to the world to be, this is a new independent country worthy of recognition. And what they wanted was, they wanted two things for Manchupo from the rest of the world. They wanted recognition and they wanted investment. So it made them very uncomfortable um, doing things that were going to get them criticized in the West. Uh, so, um, uh, and, and, and so they, uh, in, in order to uh, fulfill their wish, which is basically to um, pretty much to rape Manchuria for its wealth, they found the, uh, the Russians very useful in this process. Things that the Japanese didn't want to get their hands dirty on, uh, they would delegate to the Russians. And uh, that's actually how the, the, the story begins. Uh, Because when when they decided to go after Joseph Caspé and his money, and Caspé himself was a very, very difficult person to get hold of because he knew he was at Target, and he pretty much stayed in the hotel as much as he could, put iron bars on his windows to protect himself and his family. That's when they decided that they wanted to go after his son. And rather than have any fingerprints on it, they engaged Russian fascists to do the kidnapping.
1: Um, I want to... You notice they kind of got the help of a lot of... um... Of a lot of local people to kind of help run Manchukuo. One person I want to ask about in particular is, um is Amleto Vespa? It's, I guess this Italian fascist who somehow kind of ends up running, like I guess being being the point guy for the for the Japanese spies in in Manchukuo. Um he doesn't seem particularly happy about this, but also feels like he doesn't have much choice. I would mean, just like to talk about 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 this guy who just seems, like a like like an odd an odd person to be playing this role in in, I guess in northeastern China.
0: Well, you know, um uh, the the title of the book is already too long, uh, because it's got um, a Jewish virtuoso, Russian fascist, a French diplomat, and a Japanese spy in it. but I could easily have added and an Italian spy for hire, um a man by the name of Amleto Vespa, who was very, very um, useful to me in writing the book because he left a memoir behind. Um, He was an improbable figure. He was Italian, he spoke Russian, he spoke Chinese, he was actually working for the Chinese warlords in Manchuria before the Japanese came in, and he knew a lot because he was a spy. And so when the Japanese came in, they decided he was going to be an asset, whether he liked it or not. And they called him in, and they informed him that he was now working for the Japanese and under penalty, essentially working for the Japanese and undermining them as much as he could all along the way without being detected. Um, so he was actually something of a peripheral player in the actual kidnapping and search for Semyon Caspe, but he knew a lot and he knew who was doing what to whom. In fact, he mentioned in his memoir that it had been his boss in the Japanese military intelligence service, the gendarmerie, who actually had ordered the seizure of Semyon Caspe. And that's actually been a mystery for a long time that I, I've, I've taken a stab at solving in this book. So Vespa is working for the Japanese um, uh, and, and, and he's got his fingers in lots of different pies. He also owns a theater. So he knows Joseph Caspe very well. And um, as I say, his, 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 memoir was very, his memoir can't entirely be trusted uh, because he had some reasons not only to withhold information but also to put information out there that may or may not be true, and I, I caught him in a few problems with dates and things like that. But his actually was the first memoir about this case written. He had to when he finally got out of Manchuria, and that's a whole story in itself. He sat in Shanghai and penned this um, this uh, this memoir, hoping that it was going to be his ticket out of China. In fact, he eventually was caught again by the Japanese, and it's believed that he was executed either in the Philippines or in Taiwan.
1: Um- so so we've gone through all of this and we still haven't talked about what actually happens like the actual event which is um which is which is the abduction and kind of the 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 months of negotiations that follow where Semyon's ransom Joseph refuses to pay or well, he can't pay there's all this back and forth so so what actually happens when Semyon is abducted how does the investigation unfold
0: it happens at about midnight on an evening in august of 1933. Semyon has uh has a girlfriend at this point he's come back he's, he's really living like a bon vivant in harbin he's come back from france he's doing concert tours of asia he's planning a tour of the united states and he is an impresario he's very very good so he's he's and he's dating a woman who also grew up in harbin like he did um uh, a woman named lydia shapiro but unlike him lydia was married she had four children at that point but she had separated from her husband in Japan and moved back to live with her father in Harbin. She was also a, a concert pianist. So the two of them were dating and it was a musical evening that they had at the Hotel Modern, after which he did the right, the, the gentlemanly thing by escorting her home in his father's limousine. She didn't live very far, just a few blocks from the, from the hotel, but um, the Russians had been paying, or the Japanese had been paying um some people to kind of hang out in the lobby of the hotel Moderne and learn what Semyon's habits were and they were ready for him that night and when uh lydia was dropped off uh they were about to drop off lydia at her home um uh, some uh, uh caucasian men later later revealed to be russian jumped on the running boards um uh held a gun to the chauffeur and and uh and commandeered the car they went a good distance from uh, from the area they eventually let off, um, let Lydia off with a very large ransom demand for her, uh, that she was instructed to communicate to Joseph's father. And then they took Semyon to a uh, hideout outside of town, and that's where he stayed for for uh, several weeks. Uh, back in Harbin, uh, uh, Joseph Caspe gets the ransom demand. Uh, he, he this is it's an unreasonable amount of money that he can't possibly afford. This is the depression. He has mortgaged the hotel a couple of times already. No bank is going to give him any more credit. And um, so the only only possibility he has of freeing his son is to negotiate the ransom down, which he starts to do. But wisely, he seeks the the help of the French consulate, which after all, because uh, Semyon is now a French citizen, uh, they they feel a sense of responsibility that they want to see if they can free him. And um, so he, he, uh, he gets in touch with the consulate. Uh, and the, um, the 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 consul uh, puts his deputy essentially in charge of the case. The deputy was a man named, uh, named Albert Chambon. He was a young diplomat. He had, it was his second posting in China, uh, but it was very, very early on in his career. He too, by the way, um, wrote a memoir, mm-hmm. uh, but he wrote it at the very end of his life, which was just about 20 years ago, um, uh, and it was never published. But in the process of doing the research for the book, I was able to find my way to his um, children who had a copy of the unpublished memoir um, and were very willing to send it to me. Unfortunately, it was all in French. Um, fortunately for me, that's the, that's the language I studied in high school and um, I was able to parse through it and pretty much figure out what it said. He actually corrected me in a few areas that, uh, where I had made some mistakes, uh, but that was the second memoir um, after Vespas and there were a few more as well. Um, so Chambon was the, really the hero in this case. What, what happened, if they want me to go on, is that here's how it unfolds. The, um, uh, the official uh, uh, investigation is supposedly being handled by the municipal police department for a while. They do absolutely nothing. And then when the French start to prod the Japanese to do something and, and, and uh, inject a little bit of energy into the investigation, They switch it to the Kempeitai, which was the gendarmerie. So now the military, the Japanese military is officially involved with with this. But it did not take Chambon very long to realize that they were slow walking. And um, every time he he shared information with them, he was sorry, nothing really happened. Uh, They they actually became an obstacle. Uh, So much so that the French consulate hired its own spies to try to figure out where Semyon caspe was and sure enough it didn't take them very long to figure out where he was he was on a rail on the railroad gogan going southeast out of town he was on the one of the first stops there and they were holding him in a in a in the woods in a in a shelter um so um so go on yeah
1: no i mean go, I can just keep
0: going it's, That's all right what would you like to know
1: well i mean i was gonna i was gonna ask you know i and, and I, we do want to kind of get to the the kind of Tragic conclusion of of the investigation, which is that Semyon is found, you know, dead. But 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 why were the Japanese police, both the missile police and the military police, so fervent on on slow walking this? Like like I guess my question is, why didn't they just cut these guys loose? Like why did right. they slow walk the the investigation?
0: They slow walked the investigation because they had ordered the murder and the the kidnapping. At that point, it wasn't a murder; they were behind it. And uh, Chambon increasingly realized that uh, one of the other wonderful sources for this book was a file of dispatches from the Harbin French consulate back to Paris, which were only discovered by a French scholar in 2002, sitting in the archives at the Pays d'Orsay in Paris, and they were declassified. I was able to read them too, and so you can read through. You 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 get a sense of, of how Chambon is realizing over time not only that these people are not cooperating with him, but that they are actively um, uh, uh, blocking his investigation because their hands aren't clean. And the reason that the Japanese didn't want to just let the Russians take the fall for it was twofold. One of them was that um, there was a lot of money at stake here. And also that they they continued to have uses for the Russians, the, the Russian fascists and some of the other conservative Russians. They didn't. Uh, they realized that they found these guys out to dry. Uh, that was going to dry up, and so they. Um, it, and it was an. It was an odd um, uh, pairing in a way. It was terrible for the Jews, but for very. But the. But the. Um, there were there were two very different uh, motives. Let's say here, the Russian fascists were all in, because they hated the Jews. They blamed the Jews for the revolution. They hated Caspe, whom they claimed was a Soviet sympathizer. There was never any evidence for that. On the contrary, he was a capitalist. He wasn't a, he wasn't a communist. Um, but they, um, they wanted to, and they wanted as much publicity as they could get for the fact, for the kidnapping, because anything that reflected badly on the Jews of Harbin um, was fodder was for their interests. They were perfectly good, happy about it. The Japanese, on the other hand, wanted it quiet. They didn't want anybody understanding that they had a role in this because what they're trying to do with Manchukuo is to get investment and to get diplomatic recognition from the West. And the more that this thing looked like, it more it looked like Manchuria was lawless um, and that they didn't they didn't have uh, control over it, the, the, un, the, the, uh, uh, the worse it was for the Japanese. So it was, there's a Chinese expression, uh, which it translates as Two, two in the same bed, dreaming different dreams, and that's what was going on here. The Japanese were in bed with the Russian fascists, but they had very, very different attitudes. And the other thing I'd say is that um, the Japanese were not notably anti-Semitic at this at this point. Um, the Russians were. We've already talked about the, why the Russians uh, uh, hated the Jews and wanted to destroy them. The Japanese, first of all, didn't have a lot of experience with Jews before this. But really, the first experience they had was. Um, when they were in Siberia, the Japanese were helping the uh, helping the White Russians fight the communists, and uh, that's probably the first time they actually met large numbers of Jews in Siberia. That's also where they got a copy from a Russian military man of the the great forgery, the uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it was translated into Japanese. So on the one hand, they had that view of the Jews, which were you know uh, trying to take over the world, all of that kind of garbage. But they also had experience in the Russo-Japanese War with an American Jew named Jacob Schiff, who was a very famous financier in in New York City. And Schiff was so anti-Russian that he arranged loans to finance the Japanese military effort in Russia at the time. So what the Japanese knew of the Jews was, what was in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and the fact that the Jews seemed to be rich and capable of Um, moving money uh, 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 across international borders. and That was it. They didn't have any reason to hate Jews at that point. On the contrary, I think they admired them, and as as, as happens later on in the book, there's actually an effort um, uh, to hold onto the Jews of Manchuria and of Shanghai, and even bring more in from Europe as they were fleeing the Nazis, because the Japanese decided that they might be able to be useful in their conquest of the rest of Asia, which happened during World War II.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like they they somehow believed the conspiracy theories a little bit and said, if they figured this out, maybe we can too, or something to that effect. Um, well, that's right. And they, they called yeah. this plan the Fugu plan, the, the plan basically to keep the Jews in there. Uh, and
0: it was a beautiful, beautifully named, Fugu being the Japanese word for uh, blowfish, mm-hmm. which is uh, a delicacy, but fatal if it's not, if it's not served properly. And that's exactly how they looked at the Jews, people who could be a real problem for them, but also who potentially could be used and could uh, to bring them great benefit, and great wealth.
1: Um, so I want to maybe we've kind of now charted this whole story of the investigation. the um, It now kind of ends with uh, Semyon is killed. They arrest the perpetrators. And then there's this trial, or actually it's multiple trials, as I'm sure you'll explain, but um, but these multiple trials, which attract international attention, you note the South China Morning Post, which is the paper that I, I still read, um, had a reporter there talking about there, but like we're was reporting on the trial, um, and so the world's paying attention to to what's happening. Um, what actually happens during during these two trials and again i'm saying it's two trials for a reason
0: actually it was more than two.
1: Oh, is it? Okay. Um,
0: yeah they they started one they stopped it they said they put they changed the judges for a while um well first of all why was there so much international interest in it really the noise was being made in two places the french were making noise uh, because it was their citizen who had been killed and they wanted to see justice and the jews mm-hmm. were making noise the shanghai jews in particular were very hopeful about it and um and that kind of went around the world uh, such that when the Japanese were out pitching the Fugu plant, they met with some American Jews who were not very sympathetic to them, uh, even though they were proposing something that potentially could have saved some Jewish lives because they knew what the Japanese were up to in Manchuria. Okay. So the trials, um, uh, it, first of all, it takes them more than a year to even, even compile the charges against these Russian men, all of whom, uh, save one, were actually captured. The one was one of them was shot in the process and he wasn't obviously wasn't tried. Um, but uh, but immediately the uh, all of the ones who've been captured, say that the guy who was shot was the one who actually killed Semyon Caspé. So nobody was put on trial for murder. They were only put on trial for kidnapping uh, because there wasn't any there wasn't any evidence of uh, pointing to murder on the part of any of these other men. Um, so they they charged them with kidnapping. but. When they finally, um, and and I should also add that Tokyo is very involved in this because they're getting pressure from all over the the world about uh, they want to see justice done, and it's a it's a key test for Manchuria, is it an independent country with a with a system of impartial justice or is it a Japanese colony um, where the Japanese say what goes, and um, uh, so the Japanese had an, uh had a. Um, uh, an incentive to at least make this look like it was a real trial, even if it wasn't. Um, so they go through the first trial. No, sorry. Uh, first of all, they, um, they, uh, uh, they put together the charges and the charges are outrageous. They are sympathetic to the kidnappers because they were patriots. Now mind you, they weren't Manchurian patriots, they were Russian patriots. But it didn't matter, That's, that was part of it. And when the charges first came out, there it was, it was uh, huge hue human cry in the world because they were, they were looking for leniency for these guys because all they were trying to do was save their country of Russia. And yeah, you know, inconveniently somebody got killed, but uh, that wasn't, you know, their original intention. So they proceed on these trial charges. The, um, the judges in the initial trial are Chinese judges. See, when, when, when Japan marched in, they couldn't just replace the entire government with Japanese, there weren't enough Japanese to do it. So they sent Japanese advisors, And pretty much every government organization had a Japanese advisor at the top. The Chinese judges knew what the Japanese advisor wanted them to do. And they actually showed a fair amount of independence because they convicted them the first time around. And two of them actually were sentenced to death. Well, this wasn't what the Japanese wanted. They were still worried about their relationship with the Russians that they still wanted to use further. So uh, even though the uh, trial um, even though the verdict was not technically appealable, it did have to be blessed by the Supreme Court in, um, uh, in uh, Xinjiang, which is the town that the, uh, that the uh, uh, Japanese set up as the capital of Manchuria. Well, what happened was that it wasn't blessed. Instead, with no explanation, the Supreme Court said, retry them, retry them in a different court, and importantly, try them under a different law. That doesn't have uh, death as a penalty, and so that's eventually what happened. They were convicted finally, but they but it was a pyrrhic victory because uh, there had been an amnesty for people convicted under that law, um, declared by the emperor, who was who of course was Pu the uh, the last emperor of China, who was a Manchu and whom the Japanese had brought back into Manchuria as a as a puppet emperor, and so um, essentially the men were were condemned to uh, uh, time serve. And so nobody really was seriously punished for this, except for the fact that the men were in jail for a couple of years waiting for the trials.
1: Um, you know, I think maybe to kind of, I guess, end end our run through this history, um, you know, this this trial, I think, arguably, uh, at least as kind of I like from reading your book, kind of arguably marks the beginning of the end of Harbin's Jewish community. It's a very yeah. disillusioning, It's a, there's a lot of, a lot of disillusionment, um, and then obviously things don't get much better from there. Um, what kind of happens to Harbin's Jewish community in the years and decades following this event?
0: Um, well, it was already, I, to be perfectly fair, it wasn't the, the source, it wasn't the reason that uh, Jews began to leave Harbin. They had actually started leaving it before then. Um, once the Japanese came in and took over, um, there were real questions in the minds of a lot of the Jews as to whether they would in fact continue to be protected because the Japanese gave the Russian fascists wide latitude. They were publishing deeply anti-Semitic newspaper articles uh, accusing Jews of heinous crimes. And uh, they, they began to feel less and less safe. So people had already started voting with their feet. But the, the Caspé trial persuaded a large number of them that they could not count on justice for the Japanese. And that, they, that the best thing to do was to get out of time. And they did. A lot of them went to Shanghai, uh, to Hong Kong, to Tianjin. Um, some went to the Holy Land. Some went to Australia. Some went to North America. And um, the um, most of them were gone uh, before the war. But there was a, a hard part of them that stayed during the war. But after World War II, and uh, between the years of after World War II ended and up until the communist takeover of China in '49, most of them disappeared. And the last Jewish woman in Harbin. I think, died in the 1970s. Um, uh, and that was pretty much the end of it.
1: Um, so I think with that, that's a great place to end our conversation with Scott Seligman, author of Murder in Manchuria, The True Story of a Jewish Virtuoso, Russian Fascist, a Versatile diplomat, and a Japanese spy in occupied China. Scott, I actually have two final questions for you, okay. which are, uh, where can people find your work? And all of your work, not just this book, And um, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
0: Well, first of all, um, they can find all my work at my website. at seligmanonline.com. S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N online.com. All my work is up there. I'm actually, this is a little unusual for me, this book, because it's set in China. Most of my work is set in the United States. I'm interested um, in the history of what you might call hyphenated Americans. I've written four books, uh, biography and uh, history, about early Chinese Americans, which I discovered was a kind of an underserved area when I first started writing these things. I've written one about an early African-American trial. And um, as you mentioned, uh, the Great Kosher Meat War was a a book about the New York Jews. Uh, My next book will be out about this time next year, uh, same publisher, Potomac Books, which is University of Nebraska Press. Uh, And it's called The Chief Rabbi's Funeral. And it is the story of the single largest anti-Semitic riot in American history, measured in terms of people injured and uh, and, uh, and and abused. Um, so I'm I'm kind of looking back domestically again. Uh, yeah. I like the idea of writing about Jewish topics, and um, they seem except, uh, exceptionally timely right now. Um, so that's what I'm working on for the next.
1: Well. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReview of Books.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Timothy Brook, author of The Price of Collapse, Little Ice Age, and the Fall of Ming China. But before then, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: My pleasure.